1 Samuel and chapter 6, we'll read the entirety and continue on to verse 1 of chapter 7. Please follow along if you would. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guild offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart, two milk cows, on which has ne- there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guild offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along the highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. 
And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge over the ark of the Lord. This is the word of God. Our title this morning, again, as we've already mentioned, is Who Can Stand Before the Lord? Who Can Stand Before the Lord? You know, back in 2006, I got to go to New York, my one New York trip, never happening again. Not a city boy. Not, not country enough to be a country boy, but I'm not city enough to be a city boy, so I don't really know where I belong. I guess that's why there's a heaven. Lima. There's the punchline I needed. Thanks. But back in 2006, after I graduated from high school, I got to go to New York, got to see a show, got to stand at the top of the Empire State Building. Have you ever been there? 1,200, well, sorry, 12,050 feet in the air. At the time, it was the highest in New York City. And what was interesting, and one thing I remember very plainly, was the fence surrounding the top of the building, because you could walk all around out there. I mean, it was, it was pretty free. Like, you could reach up and touch a cloud, and you could look over the edge. and all that, all that was available to you. But there was this fence all around, a very strong fence, and particularly at the top of the fence, were curved over spikes that pointed downward as if pointing to you saying, don't even think about it, Buster. It was thrilling to stand so high, but at the same time, I knew I did not belong in that part of the sky at all, particularly without a bungee cord. It reminded me of um, this picture, which we'll put up on the PowerPoint. Have you seen this one before? I feel like I see it in a bunch of restaurants. This is called Lunch Break, and it was actually not the building of the Empire State Building, but this was for the Rockefeller Building in the 30s. And you can see these 11 guys having their lunch break. Uh, none of them are strapped to anything. They're, they're sitting on a beam 850 feet up in the air. It's a worthwhile venture for you to Google this photo shoot because there are tons of other pictures that are fascinating and terrifying. Make your palms sweat just looking at them. If you look at them too much and if you think about what 850 feet must look like from that vantage point... But even the photographers were standing on these beams and with these massive, you know, they weren't just holding their phones up taking pictures of these guys. They had these massive cameras with all this operating to do, taking these pictures. These guys so nonchalantly just hanging out. I could never do that. I could never stand on a beam like that, much less sit and eat my lunch. In a lot of ways, I think this picture helps us grasp a nonchalant attitude that we sometimes have in worship, that we miss who it is that we come to stand before in worship. Again, our question from our title comes from verse 20. Who can stand? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And they add a second question to that. To whom shall he go up away from us? The conclusion that the people of Beth Shemesh came to was, we can't stand before this holy God, and what we need to do is send him away. Does that not sound a lot like chapter 5? The exact idea, basically, that the Philistines had as well. We must do something to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is not God himself. If you're unfamiliar, the Ark was used as a representation of the power of God, of the presence of God, and of the promise of God. 
But as the Philistines captured this ark from the Israelites, having defeated their armies, they thought they could add this God to their own pantheon, to their own collections, that he could sit up next to Dagon, and they could be buddies, and they could both be worshipped by the Philistines. And it was not to be. The statue of Dagon, that next morning, after the ark being sit next, set next to it, the statue of Dagon had fallen down face forward towards the ark. So, in humor, they picked the statue back up, set him back up. The next morning, not only was he down face forward towards the ark, but his head and hands were cut off. Already we have an answer about who can stand before this holy God. Certainly not Dagon. Certainly not a false god. Certainly not the Philistines who had assumed that because they had defeated Israel, that they had also defeated the God of Israel. It was not so. The Philistines realized that they could not stand before the Lord. And so they put off their plans of domesticating, of, of breaking God in. No longer did they see him like a wild stag to be tamed, but rather that he was the one holy God before whom none could stand. Interestingly enough, they didn't come to that conclusion so soon. Did you note at the beginning of chapter 6, how long was the ark with the Philistines? Seven months. That is not, church, a, a sign that, that God just didn't do enough to get to them, to, to get his message across. That is a sign of the hardness of the hearts of people. The pride that in the Philistine heart would say, we can't send back the ark yet. We can't do that. We defeated them. To send back the ark would be like sending back our victory. It would be like bringing the spoils of everything we got and saying, here, losers, have everything. I think it's interesting for us to point out in considering the Philistines sending back the ark finally after seven months that this was not a, a true spiritual righteous humility but it was rather a reluctant, hardened humility. It was more of a humiliation that, that did not diminish their pride, but rather hardened it, most likely. And that in that, we might take that little note of the Philistines' resilience, though prideful and sinful, and apply it to today, to how many conversations perhaps you've had with people who do not know Christ who have said, you know what, if God would just fix all my problems, if he would send all my sickness away, if he would give me the money I need, I think then I could believe he's actually there. Church, God's word shows us that that would never happen, that that would not work for a single person. For God to simply come and fix our problems, that would not relinquish that heart in worship before the holy God. It would also diminish God into basically a genie. Here are your three wishes. Let me know what you want. The reason I say that that request of if God would only fix all my problems and do such good things in my life, maybe I'd believe in him, isn't true is because the Philistines had the opposite. They had the wrath of God. They had every reason to turn in humility to him because of what he was putting on them, because of the heavy hand of God. And what did it do? It hardened their hearts. See, our hearts are not ready to receive by default the goodness of God nor the wrath of God for that matter. We need a transformed heart in order not only to stand, but first to rightly see and receive who God truly is. Last week, our call from God's word was to be humbled before the heavy hand of God. This week now, we consider this call to stand before the holy God.
But standing before him is not like building the Empire State Building. It's not just like getting that, that real hardcore generation of dudes that can sit on a steel beam and eat their lunch, and, and they could jump across the other one, and, and all those amazing things that make us wow at their courage and bravery and fortitude. Standing before the Lord is not just simply having that kind of grit, but rather it is something else entirely. So the Philistines, they recognize we need to do something about the Ark of the Covenant. We cannot stand before him. We've been humbled, as it were. So they naturally go to who they believe to be the experts, the diviners and the priests of the Philistines. Those who know nothing of the one true God. These are Dagon worshipers and other idolaters. But they say very clearly in verses 3 through 5, they give an instruction You need to make some sacrifices here. Don't send the Ark of the Covenant back empty, which ironically, technically, they do send it back empty, don't they? They do prepare the sacrifices that are prescribed, which is interesting. In chapter 5, we saw clearly, okay, tumors were happening, and there was this terrible plague because of their flippant attitude with the Ark of the Lord. But chapter 6 mentions as well that you should also put some mice in there too. Make some images of mice. Make some images of tumors. That's got to be a really weird thing for the goldsmith to do, don't you think? Like they show up in his shop. Hey, what can I do for you today? Five mice, five tumors. How do you make a tumor out of gold? I don't know. This was a strange idea. And yet, ironically, maybe not for the sake of this part of the idea, but it works for them. The instruction is given in verses 3 through 5. A warning comes in verse 6 if you would look down at that. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? You know, the Philistines have mentioned the Exodus, I think, three times at this point now. Whereas Israel has seemingly forgotten everything they know about the holy God to whom they must stand. So they give instructions, they give a warning, they tell them the result. It's kind of humorous again in verse 9. I heard somebody else chuckle with me in my heart while the reading of it happened. They say, watch as the cows go. That was another interesting part of the instruction, wasn't it? Get two cows, leave their calves behind, lock them up, make them drag a cart, put the ark on top of it. If they go the right way, then we know it was God who did this thing. If they go up to their own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Do you see in the heart of the Philistine advisors here this sort of, let's just reserve some hope here that this was all just happenstance and that it's not that this God is so holy that we've so mistreated him. Let's just hold out hope that this is all a coincidence. It's idiotic, isn't it? It's foolish. It's funny that they think this way. Seemingly, in the midst of their foolishness and all of this, they grasp an idea that engaging with the God of glory, and rather engaging the glory of God, is the only way to stand before the holiness of God. To acknowledge, okay, we see it. We need to be more serious about you. We need to understand your glory and honor, so we're going to behave in that way, instead of perhaps jumping from beam to beam during the building of Rockefeller Center. So the sacrifices, again, Tumors, mice. These mice represent their plight. They have a purpose of making payment, and they bring a hope of bringing peace. This is why they form the tumors and mice. 
This is a totally forbidden practice that they would have no idea about. If you're curious, Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is where we see a forbidding of making of images, anything in creation, and using them in your worship. Certainly not to bow down to worship, but even in one sense to offer up or to have these images in any way is strictly forbidden. But remember, these are Dagon worshipers. The transport was two cows and a cart. These are mama cows. I thought it was interesting that it says that they went and they were lowing as they went. And I found out the reason they were lowing was because they were calling, who, Josh? The, the calves, right? These, they knew their job was, I need to take care of the calf. But interestingly enough, we see that the cows went straight, verse 12, in the direction of Bethlehem along one highway. Now, if you're curious about how impossible this is, please, I know I've said Josh's name like three times this morning, but talk to him about training milk cows. And, and if you could perhaps yoke them together with a wooden beam and put a cart behind them and say, go down Ashton Avenue, take a left on Metcalf. Metcalf, pun intended. Um, but it's impossible. Oh, get your tomatoes out. It, it would be an impossibility to assume that these cows could just go back to their home, that they would know exactly where they were unless God was leading them. And the lowing was not them whistling while they were working. The lowing was them calling their calves, wondering what was going on, because they were kind of out of control. They had lost control, that is. God was indeed leading his ark back to the place it was meant to be. Fascinating, miraculous, but it happened. It left the Philistines with the requirement of considering if God has so done all these things and has left you no reason to think that the plague, the tumors, the mice, the cows going down the trail by themselves, that this was all coincidence. There's no room to think that anymore. They have to deal with the reality of God's working within history, which is perhaps where we should make our first connection to Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday stands for us as a moment of great worship, but it also stands as a moment for us to recognize whether we have accepted, that is, um, received and recognized the validity of God's historical work in the world, particularly the resurrection of Christ. But we'll get back to that in a moment. We have the sacrifices, the transport. We have the destination, Beth Shemesh. This was a Levite settlement that bordered Philistine, the Philistines' camps. And the Levites, again, these are the guys that are supposed to be the priests. They're supposed to be the ones who know how to do things like handle the Ark of God. And if you remember from our story here, they don't do a very good job. If we could throw a map up here real quick, I just want you to see the traveling of the Ark. So you can see its starting point in Shiloh up there in the top right corner. Oh, yeah, this is great. Moving on to the left to Ebenezer where the battle happened. And at that point then the Philistines taking the ark to Aphek, to Lod, to Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Beth Shemesh is where we are now here. You can kind of get an idea of the mileage that the ark's getting in all of this. The idea of standing before a holy God is completely out the window. Our only response is to listen to our fallen instincts that call us to repel away from this holy God and send his, anything that represents his presence, anything that reminds us of him, as far away as we possibly can. So I made a light reference to Raiders of the Lost Ark last week, and here's the last one, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But if you remember in that movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, that the whole premise of the movie 
is to get the ark, right? Happening during the World War II era. Indiana Jones, a, a good, upright archaeologist, is trying to preserve the ark and, and secure it. The Nazis are looking for a way to empower themselves by it. I mean, I, honestly, I kind of get the idea that George Lucas was reading the Bible one day and said, what if we found the ark? And then just basically took this story and put it into a 1930s setting. But in the end, when the Ark has been captured, when Indy is left with no hope whatsoever, he's tied up to a rope, his girlfriend's been kidnapped, the Nazis seem to have won, they open up the Ark, having thought, and it's a funny scene too, the, the head Nazi guy is wearing um, all the getup of a priest that he would need in order to access the Ark. But spoiler alert here, when the Ark opens, the Nazis are all killed. The power of God is not something to be grasped and handled. And Indy has a rather humorous response to the outpouring of God's power that is taking out all these Nazis. He tells Marion, who's tied to the same pole as him, just close your eyes, just don't look. Remember? Don't look at it and you'll be okay. And when it all ended, they were fine because they didn't look. It seems a little bit unfounded when you watch the movie. You're like, where did he come up with this? But then when we look at how the Israelites handled the ark of God upon their receiving of it, and you remember particularly in verse 19, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, this has to be a little bit different than simply looking over there and going, oh, there's the ark of the Lord. This is more of a treating the ark of God as though it were a tourist attraction. This is the acting like the ark is a gimmick and a, a trinket to be accessed, to be utilized, rather than a representation of the very presence of the holy God. See, what they had fallen into was not something that they actually fell into, but something they dived headfirst in. Because remember, this is the Levite camp. They understand what the holiness of God is, or at least they should. But rather they transgress the commandment of not treating the ark with respect and holiness. Now it's interesting, a couple weeks ago in our um, teenager Sunday school, we talked about the difference between sins and transgressions. Have you ever considered that? Kind of just use them interchangeably. But transgressions, when you see that in the Bible, is referring more towards a sin that is done out of active disobedience. That is, knowing clearly what is expected of me, I actively choose to go the other way. And this is what's going on with the Levites in Beth Shemesh. The Levites who are, in one sense, playing church, who are going through regular rituals and rhythms of life and thinking lightly of the character and holiness of God, who are acting as though the, the, the ark is there, in one sense, for a show, for entertainment. And this is very important for us, church, because today's American church experience has so much to do with entertainment. Think about some of the things that we say, and I don't mean we, I mean like the royal we, like the American church here. But the kind of things that we say on our way out of church. I really liked the sermon this morning. I didn't really like the sermon this morning. I really liked that song. I didn't really like that song. I wish we would do communion the other way. The chairs are just getting so uncomfortable. Didn't he talk for way longer than he should have at this point? A lot of our response to a time of worship 
feeds right into this idol of entertainment that we've let in. That we, like the Philistines, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the Temple of Dagon, thinking we could have all things all at once, have brought entertainment into our worship time together, saying, well, we can worship God and have fun with it too. And that's so tricky, isn't it? Because doesn't part of you think like, well, yeah, I mean, I feel like I should enjoy church, right? There's, there should be nothing wrong with enjoying worship. There should be nothing wrong with saying, I really liked that song, or I thought that was really helpful, or I really enjoyed sitting in the chairs today. Whatever those things might be, those can be good things. But too often, they're a result of our repelling the Lord away so that we might have something more comfortable. And this is not just a sin done as though we might have tripped into it and fallen into it. Rather, this is a transgression for those who know the holiness of God. So are we, in one sense, among the people of God today who are repulsed by the presence of God? You might say, that's a very unfair assessment of acknowledging that we have a struggle with entertainment. But the reason why we have a struggle with entertainment in church is because we don't see God for who he really is. Because if we did see him for who he really is, if we came to worship on Sunday mornings with the right attitude of humility before a holy God, that we stand in Christ to lift up his name, to make much of him, entertainment would be the furthest thing from our minds. Our goal would be to say, I want Christ to be glorified in this service. And though I'm sitting in a chair and there's people up on a platform and and in some ways people might see these things as a performance, what we collectively come together to do on Sunday mornings, church, is to worship Christ, is to lift up his name, is to make much of him, is not a service for us, it is a service for him. Let's go back to the cows for a second. They were not trained to haul carts. They were milk cows. They were cows who had little babies to care for. That is what they knew instinctively what to do. And yet, at the command of their creator, they were actually able to follow the direction of their creator. Think about the Philistines as well. The Philistines who get a lot of stuff wrong here, they got a couple things right. They learned that God is holy and that no one can stand before him. And even with the matter of sacrifice, they recognized that the, the advice of the, uh, the diviners was to not leave the ark empty or send the ark back empty rather than even touching the ark to put something inside of it. They basically took their sacrifices and made it a to-go box. They said, here's, here's our sacrifice. You guys offer this. We don't want anything to do with this anymore. We've done our part, and what we want is not the glory of God, but we want to be repelled away from him. I've been saying this word repelling a lot um, on purpose, and I haven't given the, the reason, so I apologize for that. But I've been thinking about this, thinking about the guys on the, on the buildings and thinking about mountain climbing and, and repelling down a mountain. And what you actually have to do as you're going down is, is to actually kick off of the side of the mountain. You know, what you're doing is, is forcibly pushing yourself away from whatever it is that you're climbing down at the time. And that's the image that's been in my mind as I think about how the Philistines, and then the Israelites, and how even we today in some ways repel against God. Are we among the people today that repel against him because we are in some ways repulsed by his presence? 
It's interesting what they do in, in worship is they offer some disgusting images, don't they? Can you imagine if, if part of our worship this morning was to set up here golden images of rats and tumors on the altar? It would be odious. That would be despicable to us. But in some ways, though they see it as a, a right exchange to say, here's what you've done to us, I think in one sense they're also giving the expression of their hearts that, that this is what they see in God. He is a God of, of mice infesting and destroying their fields. The fields that, by the way, Dagon was supposed to be prospering for them. Interestingly enough, when the ark comes to Beth Shemesh, the author points out that the Israelites there were reaping their harvest, the exact opposite of what the Philistines were experiencing. Anyhow. Christ, too, was given up. He was given up to the cross by sinful, by wicked men. In John chapter 3, a uh, year and a half ago maybe, we talked about Jesus giving this illustration of what must happen to him at the cross when he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And how the Pharisees listening to that would say, why compare yourself to a serpent, a, a disgusting, vile, evil creature? How could you do such a thing? And yet I think we see a shadow of that in one sense here with these golden rats. They're repulsive. We don't want mice in our house, we, houses. We want them out. What about the tumors? What, what do you do when you, go, you get a tumor? You go to the doctor, you say, take it out. You repel away from it. It's repulsive. Christ in his day was seen as repulsive to the religious leaders of the day, repulsive to the crowds who at once would hail him as the Messiah, but then would say only days later, crucify him. He was seen as a disease. Isaiah 53, 3 prophesied it, that he would be despised and rejected and have no beauty that we should look upon him. Do we not live in a world that proves the depravity of humankind on Good Friday? John 3.19 informs us that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. And church, when we talk about God's word, when we learn about God's word, and when we look at the world around us and see, I see all the evidences of it around me, let us not fail to see in our own hearts the same kinds of things. The same fallen, faltering fragile nature that would that would echo back to us those fallen instincts that would repel us away from the lord that would say don't don't do that thing don't don't worry about reading your bible do something else go spend time with your family even even to repel us away to other good things idolatry is tricky so Christ was rejected in his day for holiness for righteousness even for mercy but especially for the matter of truth the thing that people repel against perhaps the most these days. Postmodernism came into the world, I don't know, 15-ish years ago, something like that. The idea that what's true for you is true for me and what's true for me is true for me. And we can coincide with opposing truths as long as we stay in our lane. And people kind of recognized how that was starting to grow. I mean, look at where we are today now. It's come down to the very identity of our own selves before our creator even. It's gotten very, very messy. And it's because our fallen instincts repel us away from our creator. We struggle to display these kinds of things to the world because we recognize that the world hates these kinds of things. Holiness, righteousness, mercy, truth, and grace. Like the priests in Beth Shemesh, 
We pass by our duty to know him so easily. We pass by our duty to proclaim him so willingly. Let someone else be holy. Let someone else be near to God. We'll wave our flag from far away because it's more comfortable over here. And more dangerously than that, our hearts remind us that our distance between us and God gives us a greater sense that our pet sins, our idols that we so love, are safe and secure in the backyard. Our pet sins that are actually transgressions. The things that we say, I don't want to repent of that thing yet. I don't want to give up that part of my life yet. Those are transgressions. Those things that we know we are actively disobeying the Lord. All of this to say, church, who can stand before a holy God? What would we stand on anyway? Do we have anything on which we might presume to stand before God? What could we hope could bring us a right standing with God? What could we hope that we could stand on in which we might stand before him confidently and be accepted by him? Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28, this excellent conversation about Jesus as the high priest says this very thing here in verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. See, what needed to happen in order to give us a right standing with God was there needed to be someone who was separate from us who could bring us in. A high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, those others that came before him, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. The uniqueness of Christ is that as a priest, he did not need to have his own sins forgiven by a separate offering, but rather he himself could become the perfect offering on our behalf. And so then at the cross, when he suffers the wrath of God, church, his suffering was not primarily intended to let us all see how bad the Romans can be to a prisoner, how good they are at the trade of crucifixion, to see how wicked the, those priests that should have known him as the Messiah truly were. Those were all side effects to emphasize the fact that it was the Lord who crushed his son. It was the wrath of God at the cross. And too many Easter sermons and Good Friday sermons talk all about just how we rejected him. But that's not what saves us. His rejection was not what saves us. Not the rejection of people, but the rejection of the Father. We, we sing this song, and it's a great song. But in it we say, as we're thinking on Christ, we sing, the line says something like, the Father turns his face away. Sometimes we act like this is all that God has done at the cross was just to look away, let it happen. No, the opposite is happening. He is pouring out his wrath on the Son. The wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve. The wrath against those who would take him so lightly, against those who would repel against him. And so we rightly sing, you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross, may see its nature rightly, hear its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge for the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name of which we boast. 
Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. The resurrection shows us that we have a right standing before God in the foundation of the work of Christ alone. His resurrection alone grants us the only means to stand before a holy God. He it was who was, Romans 4.25 says, delivered up for our trespasses, for our active disobedience. Church, this is why you still need the gospel every Sunday, because we still have sin to deal with. It's been dealt with at the cross, but we need to return to the cross. We need to remember the cross. We need to live in light of the cross, but we also need to stand firm in the resurrection because Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. He took our active disobedience. And church, he acted out his active obedience on our behalf. Oswald Chambers said that other religions deal with sins, but only the religion of Christ deals with sin itself, the power over our hearts. And in dealing with that sin, Romans 4.25 ends, says that he was raised for our justification. So fundamentally, church, what happens? Resurrection and justification brings us a change of position. First and foremost, just as Christ stands victoriously over death before the Father, we by faith stand in him. The platform to stand before God is now open by faith, but it will not be open for long. Christ has opened that platform by representing our plight like the golden tumors and mice, by making payment perfectly for our sin, and by bringing us the promise of a perfect peace in him. But the platform to stand before God in Christ is only open for a little while. Like the departure of the ark, the resurrection requires us to respond to the historically attested work of God, to respond to what God has actually done in history, and respond by faith. Respond by faith alone, not by adding our own thing, by setting a box next to the ark and saying, hey, the ark's really great, but here's my little contribution. Golden mice and tumors, right? It's ridiculous. We cannot bring anything before Christ, and that is why when we end, we will sing, we stand in Christ alone. If you're lost today, if you don't know Christ, draw near to him. Draw near and stand in Christ. Do not repel from him because you are invited to stand in the highest place with no fear of falling. I heard yesterday some really great things this past week about the resurrection. But one thing that perhaps was my favorite was a Christian teacher saying Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away in order to escape the tomb. He had it rolled away so we could come in. So that we could in fact attest to the historical work of God and that our lives might reflect that truth in every way. The evidence that God the Father has so worked in raising him and to answer the question of 1 Samuel 6.20, who is able to stand? Christ is able to stand and church, we are able to stand with him. This is why you need Resurrection Sunday. This is why you need every Sunday to be a Resurrection Sunday because we're called to celebrate the resurrection as we stand in his holiness. In chapters 5 through 6, you can read all about the fear of death all over these chapters. And yet, if we are standing in Christ, we have no need to fear death. We have no need to fear what happens afterwards. 
It, it struck me this past week thinking about God's divine perspective of the death of his saints. The psalmist says, precious in his sight are the death of his saints. That is to say that God, who can simultaneously look on tragedy and evil in this world and hate sin, can also look with anticipation upon the death of his people because it is the full reunion between him and them. And so should we have the same anticipation. So should we celebrate the resurrection because in truth, on the deepest level of understanding life and death, we who are in Christ will never die. Yeah, our bodies are going to waste away, but that's not death. Death is a continuous state of eternity for those who are separated from the goodness of God because of their sin. But if we've been brought back in and if we stand in Christ, then the fear of death is completely dissipated. It will be a moment. And before we know it, we'll be waking up. Like David says, it'll be like a dream. We'll be waking up from a dream into the real reality. This is the hope of the resurrection. An Anglican priest in the 1600s named George Herbert. He says, death used to be an executioner. Now, because of the resurrection, he is just a gardener. That's it. And that's the symbolism of burying our loved ones. We put them in the ground. We put dirt over. They're going to be raised to newness of life if we're in Christ. By faith, we stand in Christ. And in standing, we receive all that Christ receives as a son, as a daughter, and that firstly being that new life, but that love and acceptance and perfect unity with God. You know, I've talked a little bit about the bonsai tree that I have on my desk at home. It's been super fun to take care of that little guy. He drinks a lot of water, like a lot of water. I mean, like I fill him up and by the end of the day, he's done. He wants more. And, and I was told that this is because he has a tropical origin, that he belongs in a place where there's a lot of rain. And being in a different location hasn't changed his point of origin, hasn't changed what he actually needs. The bonsai tree sitting in a little window in Lima, Ohio, with, a, with its, um, his, his origin being completely in a different climate, hasn't changed his needs whatsoever. He still needs what he needs for his original created purpose. And so do we as the church. We still need the water of the word. We still need the fellowship of other believers. We still need to be about the work of Christ's life in us so that we can celebrate the resurrection, so that we can stand in his holiness. We have confidence in Christ for that. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we're justified because he's risen from the grave. And we are now viewed by the Father as in Christ by the Spirit, the love of the Father and the Son pours into our hearts. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you this morning for your faithfulness, your goodness to save us, to renew us, to justify us by the blood of Christ, by the resurrection of Christ. May we so live lives that, in one sense, cry out for in desperation the water of your grace moment by moment having no fear whatsoever because we stand before you holy and cleansed and purified. Lord, we have no fear of death. We have a right fear of you. We see you for who you really are. Lord, if anyone in this room doesn't know you, we pray, Lord, that you would so move on their hearts as to express the goodness of your work, the goodness of the salvation that you offer in Christ, and that we all might join in that new life you would receive the glory to your name. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.